2006, February 2nd, Lecture 21, Tests of Stellar Evolution. We'll begin in just a moment. Okay, well, welcome to Lecture 21. It's the last lecture in this series. Uh, today, some of you may recall from Astronomy 161, is a cross-quarter day. It is the halfway point between the winter solstice and the vernal equinox. The sun is roughly halfway on its journey along the ecliptic between those minimum southern point and crossing the celestial equator, as it will do hopefully on, uh, I think it's the afternoon of the 21st of March. I didn't actually look that up today. And quite appropriately, not only is this the halfway point between winter and spring, much as it may have seemed like spring for most of the month of January, it's also the halfway point of this class. After today, we will have pretty much exactly the half the number of lectures and round numbers, a little bit of interruption, but not too bad. So today we're going to finish up the story of stellar evolution, stellar structure and evolution, by really getting back down to the, the meat of the problem here. Namely, I've spooled out over the last week, couple of weeks a story of how we've learned what the interior structure of stars is and what the evolution of stars should be based on physics and on some observations that give us some clues as to what is going on in stars. Lifetimes of stars, the power sources behind them, supernovae, white dwarfs, neutron stars, all that fun stuff. Yesterday was a, an interesting lecture on black holes. I always like talking about black holes, and this probably was the one lecture of the whole quarter that's gotten the most questions, and especially after class and email. I spent a lot of yesterday afternoon answering all kinds of great questions by email. Its interest was actually sufficient. That the last week of class I've set aside for topics in astrophysics, frontier topics, and so I'm going to look at a couple of interesting black hole-related topics for that last week, one of which is an interesting implication of relativity that may or may not, depending upon the arguments, permit a form of time travel. And so I'm going to throw that in as a lecture. It's kind of a fun topic, which actually has some astrophysical interest, even though it may sound like science fiction stuff. But today we need to turn to less, um, how should we say, ethereal and speculative questions and actually ask about, well, okay, you've just spooled out this story about stars live however long. How do you know? How do we have any confidence that the story I've told, in fact, is a pretty good representation of reality? So today we're going to talk about what the actual observational tests of stellar evolution are and some of the consequences of those tests for understanding how we can relate stars to bigger structures within our own galaxy as a nice lead-in to next week's topic, beginning talking about the galaxy and the, rest, and the extragalactic world. So the key ideas today is we're once again going to see that the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram throughout this section has been our key roadmap for understanding things. But now we're going to show how the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram becomes a diagnostic tool. We're going to look at the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram specifically of clusters of stars. We'll say why those are interesting and important here in just a second. We're going to see how a particular feature in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram of star clusters, namely something called the main sequence turnoff, actually lets us tell the age of a cluster of stars. It's hard to know the age of an individual stars, but taken as a population, I can guess pretty well. We'll see how that's done. We're then going to introduce the two main types of clusters that are going to be of importance to us. These are the first time we're going to be dealing with stars as physical, gravitationally important assemblies. The first of these are open clusters, which are going to turn out to be very young clusters of a thousand or so stars that are characterized by having very, very blue main sequence stars and a handful of giants. And that's part of the clue that these are young. The other cup star is going to be globular clusters. These are immense Spherical clusters containing up to 100,000 or more stars. They're self-gravitating objects. But when I look at the Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams, I find no blue main sequence stars at all and many, many red giants. 
And so these are all clues to the ages of these structures and what they tell us. These are fossils, if you will, that I can read the fossil record of star formation in, applying all of the pr principles we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. So the problem can be stated as follows. I've, I've spooled out the story about op, uh, processes, nuclear processes, structural processes within stars that play out, in the case of the sun, over a time scale of 10 to 12 billion years. I also talked about fast-moving stars, the youngest, quickest evolving stars, evolve in a few million years. Well, it should pretty much tell you we've got a little bit of a time mismatch problem from the point of view of experimental science. How is it that I have any confidence saying I know something about processes that take millions or even billions of years when I've only been doing astronomy for 30 years and indeed modern astrophysics is barely a century old? Well, the problem basically comes down to a great mismatch in time between the phenomenon we're trying to study, star formation and evolution, and the lifetimes of the people who are doing the studying or even the lifetimes of the cultures. Let's face it, humanity with a written language has only been around for about five, 6,000 years. And that's far shorter than any evolutionary timescale that we've run into in, in astrophysics so far. Well, the problem analogously is how we look at this is not by looking at individual stars. I'm not going to learn a lot about stellar evolution by watching the sun. Because even over the immense stretches of recorded human history, the sun hasn't done a whole lot. Certainly over the fossil record, I can begin to pick up some clues as to changes in solar brightness but that doesn't really tell me as much as I would like it to. So the solution is going to be not to study individual stars, but to study populations of stars that all are related by having similar ages and similar compositions, similar starting points. And I'm going to use the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram to do this. Now the analogy I like to use and why this works is let's say that you're not an astronomer, but you're a biologist and you want to learn something about the life cycle of oak trees. Right? We have forests of stands of trees all through the central portion of the United States. An oak tree is a very classic type of tree. How is it we know something about oak trees' life cycles if oak trees can live sometimes up for 600, 800 years? Well, I would contend with a fairly observant person in the course of one afternoon can piece together the entire life cycle. Not by going out and finding a single tree, but by going into a forest. In a forest, you find examples of trees at all stages of their lives. You see acorns on the ground, you see sprouts, you see saplings, you see middle-aged trees, you see gigantic trees, and you see dead trees that have recently died and fallen over. So just an observant afternoon spent in a forest, you can piece together the life cycle of an entity, a tree, that can live for centuries. The same analogy is going to be true of stellar evolution. The timescales of stellar evolution are millions and literally billions of years. And yet by spending, well, not a few afternoons, but a few years studying the right places of populations of objects in the sky, I can see stars of all stages of their existence. We see stars beginning to form out of immense gas clouds. We see stars of various ages at places on the main sequence. We see red giants. We see red supergiants. We observe supernova explosions. We see white dwarfs and neutron stars. And we even think we see the evidence of the presence of black holes as we look around to various places. If you put all of those pieces together, we can actually tell the story of a process of a billion years within two weeks of a lecture. And that's the kind of basic thinking that's going to go behind how these tests are actually going to work. The trick is, how do I identify the equivalent of my forest 
in my example with the oak tree? What's the stellar equivalent of a forest? Well, the answer turns out to be star clusters. If I look out in space, I look out in the night sky, stars are basically look as if they're randomly just sort of sprinkled across the sky. But if I look very carefully, maybe even a pair of binoculars is actually a way to do this. You can't really tell what the naked eye per se. There's a few things. There seem to be groups of stars that all live together very close and very tight on the sky. No bigger than a few times the diameter of the full moon. In binoculars, you can tell immediately as you sweep the binoculars across the sky that there's places in the sky where there are a lot more stars than immediately around it. Now, these stars aren't simply accidentally in those places. If I watch their proper motions over long periods of time, I see that they all move together across the sky as if they bear some memory of a general motion of the gas cloud out of which they were born. We call these objects, these assemblages of stars that are actually held together loosely or tightly in varying ways by their, the self-gravity of all the individual members' star clusters. They tend to, the smallest star clusters we can recognize tend to have hundreds to maybe as many as thousands of stars. And they all stand again. Their proper motions tell us they're moving together in space. They're physically associated, not just simply randomly arrayed on, on the background of space. Now, one of the reasons why star clusters are so important to us is this common motion is telling us they were all born together at about the same time. So if I look at stars inside of a cluster, they have a lot of common properties. The first of these is actually very useful to us. They're all at the same distance. That means their, apparent, their relative apparent brightnesses among different members of the cluster represents differences in luminosity. If I just go out in the sky and pick any two random stars that look like they're the same brightness, I do not know if those are two stars of the same luminosity at the different distance or whether it's a faint star really close and a very, very luminous star very, very far away. Just the trick of the fact that apparent brightness depends upon luminosity divided by distance squared is fooling me into thinking that bright star is not really intrinsically bright, it's just close. I can't tell just by looking. But if I look at a star cluster, they're all moving together through space, they're all at the same different distance, then one star that's brighter than the other star, and both are members of the same cluster, I know that they are also, that star is more luminous than the other star. So that problem of finding luminosity, which required distances, is kind of erased to a first approximation in a cluster. Because we believe the stars are all born together, their common motion through space is a memory of the common motion of the gas cloud they formed out of, all those stars have the same age. So I'm really looking at differences of stars of different luminosity and hence different masses in many cases, but all of the same age. So I've gotten rid of the fact that, again, if I go out and look at some random patch of sky, I'm going to have a mix of red dwarfs, young and old red dwarfs, main sequence stars, supergiants, and giants of all different ages. In fact, the span of ages could be anywhere from a million years up to 10 billion years for our patch of the Milky Way that's naked eye visible. And if I just pick stars at random, I could get anything. But if I now select a group moving together, I get them all of about the same age. Okay. A simple analogy, if I simply went downtown and took a snapshot of, pe of people at some random place near a mall, I'm going to have babies, old people, college students, high school students, uh, people like me in middle age. But if I then turned around and took a snapshot of this classroom, I'm going to have almost everybody here is of a similar mean age. In round numbers, most college students are between the ages of 18 and 22. Okay, we got some older students, we got some younger students, but still. I've selected a group 
based on a common age. Now, since they're all born together out of the same gas cloud, they all share the chemical composition of that original gas cloud, the same mix of metals. It turns out that there are some second-order effects in the properties of stars that have to do whether you're born with lots and lots of metals, a late generation of star where the gas has been polluted by many subsequent su pre previous supernovae, or whether you're a really, really old star cluster that was born at a time before there were a lot of supernovae, and therefore you're born with a uh, very, very few metals compared to hydrogen and helium. So we worry about those second order effects and so clusters are nice because they're all born out of the same cloud, out of the same raw materials. And finally, star clusters have a broad range of stellar masses. As we saw before, when a cloud fragments, it fragments into a whole bunch of little pieces, a bunch of middle pieces, and just a handful of very, very large pieces. So I get a range of stellar masses over the entire length of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. So all of these properties together, and so I'm sort of belaboring these points, but it's very important to keep all of these things in mind. These are what are going to allow us to use star clusters as laboratories for stellar evolution. They are literally a snapshot of a well-defined population. And I know the starting point of that population. I can infer its age, its relative luminosities, its composition, and even knowing that I'm going to get a range of masses. Now, no, that was just the point I just made. It's a snapshot of how stars of different masses look the same age and composition. The composition is a second order effect. We're not going to dwell on it further in this lecture, but you sort of keep it in the back of your mind that there's always nuances. Now, let's go back to something we said last week, the main sequence. The main sequence is a mass sequence. This means that high mass stars are going to be hot and they're going to be high luminosity. Low mass stars on the main sequence are going to be cooler stars and they're going to be low luminosity stars. That's the basic diagonal band across the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. The second fact we need to then take into account is the fact that the main sequence stars have different lifetimes on the main sequence. To be on the main sequence, they must be in hydrostatic equilibrium, in thermal equilibrium, and deriving their energy from hydrogen fusion into helium, either via proton-proton or CNO cycle. When they run out of hydrogen, they cease to have that energy generation mechanism, they fall out of thermal equilibrium, they fall out of hydrostatic equilibrium, and they move off the main sequence. High mass stars, that happens very fast. It happens within a few million years. Very, very low mass stars, as we've seen, they can spend millions, billions, billions or even trillions of years on the main sequence before they run out of hydrogen and then lose their equilibria before evolving on to the next phase. So as I go from the top of the Hertzsprung, top of the main sequence of high mass, high luminosity stars, if I see stars there, I know they're young. The low end, you know, I don't know anything. So that, that fact that, that the top of the main, main sequence will begin to peel away first is going to be our first indication of how we can measure things in terms of, of age. The final fact we're going to run into is that high mass star, low mass stars take a lot longer to form than high mass stars. So if I catch a star cluster very, very young, before any of the stars have evolved away from the main sequence, I'll find that the highest mass stars will reach the main sequence first, but the lowest mass stars may still be on their way when I take my cluster snapshot. So we can see all the stages, all the pieces of stellar evolution by picking many different clusters of many different ages across the sky. Now, as a cluster ages, so we start out with most of the stars in the main sequence. The high mass stars are going to hit the main sequence first. They're going to set, settle down into hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium and shining. 
sitting on that diagonal band. The low-mass stars are going to take their time to get there. A very, very low-mass red dwarf is going to take almost a billion years or 10 billion years to reach the main sequence. In fact, for some clusters, it takes an extremely long time for the lowest-mass stars to reach the main sequence. Well, they reach the main sequence first, they run out of their hydrogen first. They evolve in their cores, becoming supergiants within a few million years after alighting on the main sequence. As we go through time, because the time that they spend on the main sequence is a strong function of mass, the highest mass stars will leave the main sequence first, followed by the next lowest mass, followed a little bit later by the next lowest mass still, and all the way down the line. So there's a progressive evolution with mass because the main sequence lifetime is so sensitive to the mass. Basically, the main sequence lifetime is inversely proportional in round numbers to the third power of the mass. So the effect of this is as a star cluster ages, you kind of take that diagonal band of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram and you kind of peel it off from the top. The highest mass stars leave the main sequence first, followed by all subsequently lower and subsequently lower masses. So if I take a snapshot of a cluster, the shape of its main sequence, what the highest mass stars are on the main sequence, is giving me a, an indicator of the age of that cluster. Because if the cluster is older, then you can have O stars, and there's no O stars there. Gives you a hint. There won't be any O stars there. So let's look at this for a series of clusters. I've made up a few clusters. These are based on actual observations, but I've cartoonized them as if I could now imagine building a movie of a single cluster of stars. Here's a cluster of stars that's forming out of some large gas cloud. When it's a million years after the beginning of the star formation process, the highest mass stars are up here at the hot, high luminosity end of the main sequence. The coolest stars, the lowest mass stars, are down here at the cool, low luminosity end. After a million years, all the really high mass stars have long since evolved over onto the main sequence. They're now stable hydrogen burning stars in thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium. But the very low mass stars are still not quite in hydrostatic equilibrium and thermal equilibrium. Hydrogen fusion may have begun in these stars, but it's not able to make up 100% of the energy needs. So as we saw last time we're talking about star formation, if I look at a very young cluster, I'll find that the bottom end of the main sequence is still not quite there. It's still laying down there. So this is what a, thing would, a cluster would look like after about a million years. In fact, a very, very massive star in this particular cluster has already, even after a million years, the supermassive star has actually already left the main sequence and has become a red supergiant. It's such a fast process, my snapshot has caught just one red supergiant, a well-established hot main sequence, and a still-to-be-established cool low luminosity part of the main sequence. Let's step forward now to 10 million years. At 10 million years, all my O stars have run out of hydrogen. They've evolved over into red supergiants, and so they're sitting over here. The B stars, the most massive B stars, have already begun to run out of hydrogen. and They're on their way over, but they haven't fully gotten to the point that they're burning helium in their cores. That high-mass star, which used to be here, probably went supernova a long time ago. However, once I get to about B stars here, stars with temperatures of about, you know, 15, 18,000 degrees Kelvin, those stars still burning hydrogen into helium in their nucleus and still, provide, still able to maintain a state of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. They're he building up a helium core, but the helium core hasn't started collapsing and hasn't pushed it off the main sequence yet. So you can see the effect of the main sequence kind of getting a little kink in it 
at the high mass end. Meanwhile, down here at low masses, these low mass stars, which used to be up here, have now meandered their way down towards the bottom of the main sequence. So while these stars have already jumped across and are into the next phases of their evolution, the red supergiant phase, these guys haven't even gotten it together on the main sequence yet. So if I found a 10 million year old cluster, this is what I would expect to see. No O and B stars on the main sequence, B stars just turning off, just beginning to evolve away, and the lowest mass stars just starting to get close to the main sequence. If we jump ahead now 100 million years, the B stars are all gone. They've already gone over here. In fact, the O stars there have long since popped off as supernovae in their history. You know, they're neutron stars and they're, they're gone. Now, it turns out that A stars, typically the early, the hottest version of A stars, have lifetimes on the main sequence of about 100 million years. So I see A stars on the main sequence, but I don't see any B or O stars. Those have all turned off and are now evolving towards red supergiants. The bottom end of the main sequence is still trying to get its act together. It takes about a billion years for those things to actually hit bottom here. And I have a, still a well-established middle main sequence here between the masses of A stars and kind of late M stars here. They're all nicely burning hydrogen to helium, just like they have been for the last, well, most of the part of 100 million years. Advancing now, another factor of 10 to a billion years, F stars. Again, now, the next lowest mass, they've run out of hydrogen, they're turning off. All those supergiants are gone. They've long since gone supernovae, and they're just out of there. There's no more supergiants in this cluster. But I am getting the first generation of red giants. So remember, supergiants are across the top. Red giants are over here. These are now evolved. Some of them are actually approaching the helium-burning phases. Now, most of my main sequence, just the lowest mass stars are just barely making it to the main sequence. And the middle part of the main sequence between F, G, and K, and most of the M stars are now settling down on the main sequence, just burning hydrogen into helium and nice thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium. By 10 billion years, stars like the Sun, G stars, are running out of hydrogen. I've completely depopulated the main sequence from O, B, A, and F stars. And now the G stars are starting to peel off. These have much slower evolution towards the red giant phase, and so I now begin to fill in the gap. I'm catching stars in here. I also see a horizontal branch and a handful of asymptotic giant branch stars, but it's a very short-lived phase, so any snapshot's just going to barely catch them. And now, finally, I've got a well-established lower main sequence with M stars and K stars down here, and I'm starting to see the white dwarfs that were the cores of what used to be the F stars in that previous cluster are now beginning to build a nice white dwarf sequence down here. So this snapshot of the cluster, what do I see? I don't see any stars hotter than G on the main sequence because they've all evolved away. The cluster's too old for them to exist. I see a well-established main sequence to very cool masses, very, very low, cool, low masses, cool stars. I see a beautifully well-established giant branch, horizontal branch, and asymptotic giant branch, and I see a white dwarf sequence. I'm actually starting to now see stellar remnants that are visible in the HR diagram. We'll stop this sort of here at this, at this cluster diagram. Let me sort of walk back through the picture here and now make it go faster. So here would be what you would see for a movie going forwards and backwards of the evolution. We start out with a hot blue main sequence, and we begin to lose 
successively lower and lower mass stars. And so you can see this effect in each of these snapshots of starting out with this main sequence and peeling it off from the top. You can see how we go from having supergiants to beginning of red giants to finally a well-established giant branch and the beginnings of a white dwarf sequence. So just from this sort of theoretical cluster alone, I can see how as a cluster ages, the shape, the, the, the sh if we call it the shape of the, the appearance of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram for that cluster is a strong indicator of its age. And so that's going to be the key. How we learn the ages of clusters, how we know its evolutionary state, is just make a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram for all the stars in that cluster, and then the appearance of that Hertzsprung-Russell diagram tells us most of the story. There are some questions out here. Yes, sir? So you never have like a cluster where you have both supergiants and white dwarfs? The question is, do you never have a cluster with both supergiants and white dwarfs? That's right, because supergiants primarily, except for a handful of supergiants, fainter supergiants, will evolve into oxygen, neon, magnesium white dwarfs. But there's only going to be like one of those or two of those at best, even in a cluster of a thousand stars, because those are relatively rare. If you see lots of white dwarfs, for example, carbon-oxygen white dwarfs, those all come from low-mass stars, stars between about basically under four times the mass of the sun. So a supergiant is going to come from stars above four solar masses. So if, if you see supergiants and white dwarfs, probably what you've got is a superposition of two clusters of different ages, because they can't coexist. There's a very strong sequencing. There, there are, perhaps there are, there are no ways we know of easily to reverse the evolution of a star, to say, oh, well, this is just an O star that's kind of, you know, kind of slow. It's deciding to evolve more slowly. Its energy needs are so relentless that it will evolve fast no matter what. Because remember, stars shine because they are hot. And they have to maintain that hotness. They have to burn their heat, very, burn, their, burn their nuclear fuel very, very rapidly. That immediately shortens the lifetime. It all hangs together very nicely and logically. That's what sort of the beauty of this, of this is. Now, as you saw the, the top of the main sequence peeling off, there was a very clearly this place that I referred to as the turnoff. It's the place where the main sequence kinks off, where we have the last main sequence stars as I go up in mass. As a cluster ages, you saw that turnoff got to progressively earlier, lower and lower mass stars. Since low mass stars are also cooler main sequence stars, we talk about the color or the temperature of the, of the main sequence turnoff. Because low stars have lower mass stars are cooler and have redder temperatures, I talk about a red turnoff versus a blue turnoff. If you see a blue turnoff, you see a very young cluster. If you see a red turnoff, you've got a very, very old cluster. Because the only way you could get that turnoff to be in very cool, faint red stars is for it to be extremely old. So this is an indicator of cluster age. Basically, if I go out and look at older clusters, they have redder and fainter turnoffs. Oops. Okay. So this is actually the, the, the way in which we age date stars. I can't look at a single star and see like, you know, I was born on, you know, date, date stamped on the star. But I can look at the stars that it's part of a, of a group with, part of a cluster with, and use that to date the relative age of the star by dating the relative age of the cluster. If I wanted to look, know about the age of a star that's sitting out anywhere else all by itself out of a cluster, it's actually harder for me to put an age on that. In the case of the sun, I wouldn't have any clue except for I can look at the ages of meteorites and the ages of the planets in its solar system and use that as a gauge of the age of the sun. There are other more subtle tricks, but they're hard to apply generically, whereas clusters are very nice, because if you can identify stars in a cluster, you have a very good, almost generic way of dating the whole population 
all by itself. So here's an example. Here's two star clusters, different star clusters, and they're Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams, luminosity going up, temperature going over here to the left, blue to red. This cluster here has no stars hotter than B on its main sequence. The turnoff here is about at B stars. Since B stars tend to live about 10 million years on the main sequence, I know that this cluster is about a 10 million year old cluster. This other cluster over here has a turnoff at F stars. There are no stars hotter than F on the main sequence. I see a beginnings of a giant branch. I see a couple of white dwarfs hanging out down here. These might be those white dwarfs coming from the more massive stars. But notice I've got a redder, fainter turnoff. And since I know that these F stars live approximately one billion years before they leave the main sequence, this is a cluster whose age is one billion years. So just from this picture alone, by seeing what is the color, what is the spectral type of the hottest main sequence star on that main, on that main sequence, I have a hint as to the age of the cluster. So again, on the left, 10 million years old, I don't see any stars hotter than B. At 1 billion years old, I wouldn't see any main sequence stars hotter than F. But it's important word is main sequence stars hotter than fill in the blank. Here's, in fact, a series of HR diagrams which have all been superimposed for a large number of clusters of stars. And this shows you why our tests of stellar evolution, in fact, are very richly defined using just nearby star clusters visible from the sun. This shows the main sequence, surface temperature and luminosity here. And we see a whole array of extremely young clusters where the O and B stars are just beginning to turn off. This is H and Chi Persei. It's a very beautiful cluster, a double cluster of stars up in the constellation of Perseus. It's got supergiants and uh, blue supergiants and red supergiants. The Pleiades, the seven sisters in the winter sky, is about 100 million years old or so. It's sitting over here. It's just beginning to turn off there and a variety of older, successively older clusters until finally we get down to this guy, M67, Messier 67, has a beautifully well-defined giant branch and horizontal branch sequence. So I see by looking at different clusters, I get snapshots of everything from very, very young clusters, clusters at about 100 million years. This is now age. This is 10 million years, 100 million years, a billion years, and 10 billion years. And it's interesting that for all the local open clusters, I don't see very many open clusters older than about 10 billion years. In fact, I don't see any older than a few billion, few billion years here. That's kind of an interesting fact. I'm not finding really old clusters nearby the sun. That tells me that most of the star clusters that have remained near the sun formed only about eight or nine billion years ago at most. There's a couple possible interpretations of this. One might be that, that open clusters are very fragile. Maybe really old open clusters don't survive as clusters because they're torn apart by the tides of the galaxy over the course of 10 billion years. Or maybe it could mean that the age of the disk of our galaxy is less than 10 billion years. You can see how that these clusters can be opened up as not simply a tool for stellar evolution, but now could actually allow us to do a kind of stellar paleontology of the life of the entire galaxy that these stars are born in. In fact, we're going to see exactly that use in the subsequent section of this class. Now let's look a little bit, just about introduce to you some of these types of clusters here. Clusters in the sky actually come in two basic flavors, open clusters and globular clusters. Here's a beautiful picture of an open cluster, NGC 2266. It's a very nice, relatively young cluster. I believe this one's only a few hundred million years old or even less. 
Open clusters are fairly sparse. They're fairly loose assemblages of stars, although you can see there's a big pileup of stars here compared to the outskirts, and that kind of calls your attention to, oh, yep, cluster of stars. They usually typically contain anywhere from a few hundreds to a few thousand stars. In many cases, older clusters tend to contain fewer stars than younger clusters. Some of this is a consequence of stellar evolution, the more massive stars have evolved away. Some of it may in fact be due to dynamical evaporation over time. They tend to be a few parsecs in diameter, hmm. not too surprisingly about the size of the parent molecular cloud they were born from. They have many blue main sequence stars. This beautiful color photograph here shows you a mixture of blue stars and there's a few bright red supergiants, but not very many. So you can see these clusters look blue. In fact, through a telescope, many of these clusters actually are almost glittering blue with little spots of red in them. Those are the red supergiants, or red giants if they're a somewhat older cluster. And again, based on their Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams, they all tend to have relatively young ages. Rich open clusters with lots of blue stars tend to be hundreds of millions of years, but we do find examples with ages going all the way up towards about 10 billion years on average within the Milky Way galaxy. Now, it turns out the open clusters also have another interesting property. They're only found in the disk or the plane of the Milky Way. I don't find them anywhere else but in the main disk of the galaxy. We're going to see that later on as being an important clue to the successive formation of the Milky Way galaxy. Oops, what did that happen there? And a few giants. I'm having some fun PowerPoint problems here today. <laughs> okay. Globular clusters. The other form of clusters that really stand out, and these are absolutely beautiful through telescopes, are called globular clusters. These are rich spherical clusters containing anywhere from 100,000, even as far up as to a million stars. They're big. They're about 10 to 30 parsecs in diameter. They contain no blue supergiants at all. They're actually they're no blue main sequence stars at all. In fact, you don't see any blue stars in this thing at all. Well, okay, there's one there, and there's one or two there, but those are blue horizontal branch stars. Those aren't main sequence stars. There are lots and lots of giants. In fact, you can see this thing is sprinkled throughout with little red stars. And in fact, in the core of the cluster, you can see how the whole thing has a slightly reddish tint to it. Not really super red, because the colors, the colors of this picture taken from the Hubble Space Telescope are not exactly perfect, but it's pretty good. So you see lots and lots of giants, a well-established giant branch in the HR diagram. You see no blue main sequence stars at all. That immediately tells you it's, it's old. In fact, Globular clusters tend to begin, as we see them, at a few billion years old, all the way up to 10 to 13 billion years old. Some of them are as old as about the age of the universe itself, which is about 13 and a half, 14 billion years. What we don't see are young globular clusters. We don't see any globular clusters younger than a couple of billion years old. A couple of important clues there. Something about the formation of globular clusters was really possible a long time ago in the past of the galaxy, but no new globular clusters have formed since. The other interesting clue is globular clusters are found all over the sky, especially outside of the plane of the Milky Way. They're actually a different component, an older component, left over basically from the assembly of the Milky Way galaxy itself. So these, the fact that I can date them by age and they come in different places is an important clue. Now, the open clusters of the HR diagrams, again, sort of summarize. As they're young to middle-aged, they have a lot of blue main sequence stars, very, very few supergiants or giants, depending upon their age. The older open clusters have a lot more red giants, again, consistent with the fact that red giants are longer-lived for low-mass stars. 
and so you tend to build up a persistent giant branch. Your chances of seeing it are better. You don't see a horizontal branch for the most part. The horizontal branch is largely the higher mass end of things, and the youngest still have gas clouds associated with them. You often still see in the very youngest clusters wisps of gas nearby. Okay. Oh my God! What the hell was that? <laughs> yeah, a little quality control problem in this one today. Well, that's exactly the same thing I just showed you, but now it's uh, been text repeated with a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram for a star cluster called Pricipe. It's the beehive cluster in the constellation of Can Can Cancer. It's a 600 million year old cluster. The green line here is the zero age main sequence. And you can see stars, supergiants, a few blue, blue stars, blue supergiants beginning to evolve off the main sequence. But down to the lowest masses we can see, which is this is down to K stars. The M stars are too faint to observe in this diagram. We see a beautiful sequence. Now you will notice the spattering of stars, which is off the main sequence. Anybody got, got any ideas of what's going on maybe there? What are these stars doing off the main sequence at low mass? Doesn't make sense, does it? Maybe they don't have quite enough energy to make fusion. Well, no, actually, that doesn't work because remember, their fusion requirements have to be met by their luminosity requirements, and their luminosity requirements just because they're big and big and hot. Good, good idea, but it doesn't quite work in the physics sense. Well, I'll tell you, it's actually a trick of observation. These are binary stars, and the light is doubled by the fact that the two stars are so close together that I'm measuring the light from both stars, but they're of similar temperature, so. I see two 5,000 degree stars next to each other. I can't tell them apart. It still looks like 5,000 degrees, but I have twice the light. And so they basically pick up vertically, and it forms a parallel sequence called the binary sequence. So this is a way, in fact, you can do a quick selection of which stars are really binary stars and which are not, is you take a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram of a cluster, and you look for the parallel binary sequence. And you picked out all the binary stars, and among the thousands of stars in that cluster, you can then focus on them for spectroscopy and say, oh, look, that's a double line spectroscopic binary. Little trick of, the, of what real things look like. There's always nuances around. Globular clusters are very, very old. In fact, their ages tend to be between 10 and 13 billion years for the oldest clusters that we know of. They have extremely red turnoffs and no blue main sequence stars. They have huge numbers of red giants because they have well-established old red giant branches. No supergiants at all. They're too old for supergiants. The supergiants would have long since gone supernova and vanished. They have a very prominent horizontal branch. Some of this horizontal branch is made more prominent by the fact that they also turn out to have lower metallicity. There's less metals in these things than expected. You also have a main sequence that's slightly bluer and slightly fainter than the main sequence I see in stars around me in our galaxy. And this is one of these second order effects that comes into play because globular clusters on average have less metal content per unit hydrogen mass than stars near the sun. But this makes sense because in fact, if these stars are 10 to 13 billion years old on average, there could have been no more than one or maybe two generations of supernovae to have polluted the gas they formed out of. A supernova going off next to you really doesn't count because you didn't form out of that gas. It may spatter a bit on your surface, but that's not going to completely alter your composition. Stars around the sun formed after about five, six, seven, eight billion years, of which there have been multiple successions of generations of supernovae 
each of them dumping their metals into the surrounding interstellar medium, and then those next generation of stars forming start with more metals. The effect of putting more metals into the atmosphere of a star slightly changes where the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram has its main sequence. High metallicity tends to have a slightly redder and brighter main sequence. Low metallicity stars tend to be slightly hotter and lower main luminosity. The reasons for it are somewhat subtle, but it actually is very easily observable if I look at a typical globular cluster. So that beautiful globular cluster I showed a picture, a Hubble Space Telescope picture of before. This is now what its HR diagram looks like. The turnoff is around G stars, a very red turnoff. But now the horizontal branch reaches out to here. But notice the zero age main sequence is for a cluster of stars near the sun, and it seems to miss everything. That's because this is a galactic zero age main sequence for high metallicity stars, but a globular cluster is low metallicity, so in fact I would have to shift the entire sequence down to about where I'm showing the laser pointer moving across to get it to match. And when I do that, I can compute what a zero age main sequence star should be for a stars that have only a few percent of the metal content I see in stars like the sun, and this is what I get. So the conclusions are that cluster HR diagrams are giving us a snapshot of stellar evolution. It's the walking into the forest to put together the life cycle of the trees experiment. We have observations of star clusters now. If I just simply look out into the galaxy around us, I can find clusters 